are very welcome along to the RTE Rugby Podcast, our first podcast of 2024, New Year. Same old guest list though, Bernard Jackman and Johnny Holland with me to discuss the New Year's Day Interpros, which threw up a couple of very, very big results. Connacht ended their five-game losing run, a hard-earned 22-9 win against Munster, the defending champions, now 10th in the table, still without an away win this season for Graham Rantry's side. But later that evening on New Year's Day, Ulster with the result of the round, 22-21 winners over leaders Leinster at the RDS. And that's where we're going to start. Johnny Holland, I'll go to you first. Happy New Year as well, by the way, and thanks for joining us. Um, So I was in the sports ground on Saturday. I only heard the the final score of this game. And, you know, as you're driving home, you're trying to, to piece together how this game kind of came about. You know, would Ulster have ran into a massive lead or did they just kind of grind Leinster down? Slowly, when I watched it back yesterday, um, I thought what was most impressive was granted Ulster got out to that early lead, but unlike last season, when Leinster pulled them back in, Ulster stayed in the fight. And if you look at the stats sheet from the game, you would probably think it was a fairly comfortable Leinster win. But ultimately, Ulster went down to the RDS with a plan and they executed it brilliantly. Yeah, I think they did. And like when you listen to Billy Burns afterwards in his interview as well. They're very, they were very comfortable in how they approached that game, and obviously had a lot of clarity in what they were going to try to do against Leinster. And you know, he kicked very well. Billy Burns kicked very well. He had a lot of, I think, three kick assists uh, for tries, and and he could have had another one in the second half to Lowry, but they just didn't get the pass away. Um, so they obviously had a very clear plan, which didn't involve having a lot of possession, uh, but they did really well. And then when you look at it, you can be, you can be a little bit critical of of other aspects of their game as well, albeit in poor conditions, by the way. But, like, they actually had more opportunities to to get another score in the second half. And that's probably something that they look at within their own camp, you know, going forward. If they're going to be more consistent and not just have one-off wins against the likes of Leinster, if they're going to actually challenge for something at the end of the year, then you can't go the whole second half. Yeah, they were protecting a lead and maybe they didn't have to go and play, but against Leinster, you always do. Um, I think they put it, they tacked on a penalty at one stage from a scrum in the second half, but they had a couple of lineouts in the 22 that they couldn't convert, even to the very last play of the game nearly. They had another lineout they could have really um, got a little bit of distance, got the bonus point away from, from Leinster and all the rest of it. So they had actually opportunities to um, to get a bit of distance from Leinster, but at the same time, you're looking at, I think, like, you know, 60-odd minutes there, nearly coming towards 70 minutes. Leinster had an overthrown lineout, and they had 18, 19 phases where Gibson Park threw a bit of a wild pass if it was anyone else you'd be calling it a massively wild pass he's done it a lot before but he threw a big pass under the post intended for Kieran Frawley that was intercepted by Luke Marshall so both teams actually had chances to win that game it was a very tight one but for Ulster to come away with the win in a tight game with chances going to both sides obviously it's a it's a massive step forward for them and um, and they'll take a lot of confidence from it One thing Johnny said there Birch at the start was uh, importantly though for Ulster there was clarity in what they were trying to do and I think back to a couple of podcasts we would have done maybe about four or five weeks ago, where that in particular, I think, was something we were quite quite critical of Ulster. That yeah. they didn't seem to have that particular plan, but it all came together on on New Year's Day. It did, and look, it was it was a plan based around the new defensive system that Leinster um, are putting in place, and and I think Billy Burns after the game, you know, highlighted Dan Soper. You know, having haven't worked with him to 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 pick together a couple of little strategies that they're going to use, and obviously to score score early off a set piece line out uh, with a set set place chip uh, was exactly what you need to do away from home in a place like the RDS. But then some of their 
the, the two other kicks on transition um, and a turnover play were absolutely inch perfect from from Billy Burns. But there was a there was a thought process behind it and exploited, I suppose, how high the Leinster players, the wingers, tend to play um, with this new system. And uh, also, to be honest, a little bit of, I think Leinster, I think they're further along in, in terms of implementing that new defensive system than they looked at the weekend. I just think chopping and changing that Leinster are doing in terms of selection, you know, Frawley back at 15, um, Russell and Tommy O'Brien on the wings, uh, Liam Turner at 13. They probably haven't had a huge amount of reps together. And uh, it was like, from Ulster's point of view, that's exactly what you need to to pick out and, and, and say, look, we're going to test that. And then um, Billy put the ball on, a, on an absolute plate and, and um, he scored three tries, as Johnny said, from kicks. So, uh, but I don't think that's repeatable. That's, you know, you can't build your attacking game around that. That's just a little bit of a wrinkle for, for a particular opposition. And I think it was brilliant to see because I, I think copy and paste attacks, you know, where you just, and I, that's why I'd be critical of Ulster is that we've just been trying to do the same thing without much success. And, away from home, a game against Leinster where you're massive underdogs, it was the perfect time to just say, look, uh, we're going to just change things up a little bit here. We're going to kick on first phase um, off turnover. Uh, we're going to look to get the ball into the wide channel quickly through the boot of Billy. And how they did it, I mean, the the way they pulled that pass back for the second and third try to bring the defensive line up even more and to bring that wing up higher just created um, way more space than you'd normally see off just kicking off 10 off a nine pass or or even if you try and play that off a, a pot of tree with a pullback, you, uh, the defense are going to get to you. It was just, it was very, very unusual. I haven't seen teams target South Africa in that way either. So um, there was a little bit of creativity in it and then really good execution. And Johnny, from the out half point of view, like we're talking about those, those Billy Burns kicks, talk us through the process of how, how difficult are those kicks to actually execute on a night like that where, you're judging the ground conditions where it's going to be so soft and so slippery, even just kind of getting the right connection on the ball when the when the conditions are brutal like that as well. Like we talk about the coaches having put together and Billy Burns as well having come together and come up with this excellent plan, but it's not just a case of coming up with the plan. The execution of it is actually quite difficult. Yeah, it is. Now, I think like the second and third try, he had acres to aim for, you know, like he had a grubber through and he had a kick over the top. But even the, even that... sorry even for Nick Timoney's second one like I mean he put he put a good bit of power into that kick and it really skidded up off the ground like it wasn't just a a case of popping it down into an area and letting someone run onto it like maybe Jacob Stockdale one was like the mm-hmm. the Timoney one in particular that was darted down into that corner no it wasn't but that's the thing like we we'd be talking at club level that when you know you're kicking the corners that to actually hit touch when it's wet you get away with it a little bit because the ball doesn't have to hit the ground at a certain way, like it just skids on. So, you know, that kind of skid in the wet conditions does actually help you from time to time. But the first one was, because you saw Sam Prendergast in the second half tried, tried a similar chip and he put it just too far and that was the difference, you know. So um, the first one is actually quite difficult because when the ball is that wet, it can come off your boot a small bit and go a little bit far. So I, I think his first one was the, the best skill of the lot of them because, you know, you talk about trying to get it in behind the centres so that the centres like, and not too wide because the 13 will drop back and get it or the wing might drop back and get it. So where he actually placed it was it couldn't have been more perfect. And then when you look at the positioning of Rob Russell, I don't know, maybe he was a small bit deep, but he was only a touch off getting it. Maybe that was the execution of the kick as well. If it was, you know, a yard or two further on, Russell might have claimed it or made the tackle on, on Nick Timoney. 
uh, and the weather obviously helped Nick Timoney to slide for five metres. Actually, <laughs> finished that off nicely, but but it, it was actually um, a, a perfect kick for the first one, which is very very hard to execute. You'll do that a couple of times in training, but I, I do wonder like what uh, Bernard said there. You know, Kieran Frawley came in late to the full back position, didn't he? Um, and maybe he wasn't training there all week. And he's a good fullback. You see him taming attacking kicks in the air and stuff like that. He's a good ball player. But, you know, the difference between him and Keenan there, Keenan just eats up the ground in the backfield. I'm not sure would you have scored. And that's why Bernard's saying, you know, if you're going to a knockout game against Lancer, you can't just think that you're going to score three more tries from kicks. You will get some because the defensive shape's not going to change. And if you stress them on one side and then come back, sweep the pass and go to the other side, there will be opportunities there. But there are fine margins of when you score. And if, if you go Keenan's on the pitch there, you know, you might not actually get the opportunity because he covers so much ground in a kind of an old Felix Jones-esque type way. There's, it's very, very hard to find grass and someone like that is on the pitch. So it's, it'll be interesting to see how they use it going forward. But again, it is it is a little bit easier to look at Leinster and put all your uh, effort into um, an attacking strategy to get what we would consider the best team or the league, the league leaders at the moment. But doing that week in, week out uh, with a mindset of, of taking apart the team, it's not always... You know, I think it's a small bit easier to get a team like Leinster with such a clear defensive game plan. There's, it's easier to come up with something against that. But when teams are a little bit more run of the mill, it's hard to have such a clear cut strategy like like uh, Ulster had. Mm. On the on the defensive side of things, Birch, um, I think Johnny Bell in particular will have to be quite pleased with how much they fronted up. I know, uh, I know Leinster's mall and like like once they got that lineup mall going, it was it was pretty destructive, but. If I think back to the podcast me and you did last week where we were, where we were talking about Ulster and Connacht and how easily all of those Connacht scores came at Kingspan Stadium on the on the 22nd for all the possession and territory and phases Leinster had in Ulster's half while they did score three tries they had to seriously work hard to get them yeah it was it was much better i don't think we can say that all their issues have been solved i mean they weren't tested out wide um like they were for two of Connacht's tries but the their goal line D in particular was was much more aggressive, um, much more organized. I, I watched the game back. I, I was driving back up from Galway, so I only heard the game on, on radio, but I watched it yesterday and it didn't have any comms. I only had ref mic. And there was a real positive energy in terms of the communication among the Ulster players. They were kind of living off those those little wins that they were having. Um, and there was an energy about them, which I think, that's been the biggest issue for me. With, with, with uh, one of the biggest issues for me, but also defense is that at times they just they just switch off. Whereas against Leinster, you felt they were on. Um, I'd still would love to see them. I'd have to see them defend against a Leinster, um, on a on a on a dry day and when they would have tested a little bit wider out. But certainly, um, if you think about Ulster, like I've been critical of them because I I didn't think they put any back to back performances and I think their kind of performance was a little bit off. Uh, well, it was certainly a long way off the Racing one, but realistically, the last three weeks now they've they've obviously beaten Racing, beaten Connacht, and and got an away win in Leinster. That's hopefully for them the turning point of their season and um the confidence that belief they're going to get out of having beaten Leinster, particularly RDS, uh, could be massive for them because the reason I've been critical of them is I think there's a lot of talent in that squad. I think it's a it's a it's a it's a squad. It was the most experienced Connacht team or Ulster team that had gone to the ever to the RDS. Um and they should be expecting to to be there thereabouts at the knockout stages, I think. And given what happened just over twelve months ago, Johnny, to Ulster at the RDS, giving up that big early lead that they had that they'd take like a nineteen point lead with twenty odd minutes gone and like the psychological blow from that game 
like it stayed with them for the majority of the season, really. When you when you look at the, the run they went on of six defeats in, in seven games, they never really shook that off. I know this is just one game, but there has to be a big psychological boost to them now, having got that early lead against Leinster, Leinster coming back into it and going in front and and Ulster staying in the fight, nudging themselves back in front. And I'm looking at the, the timeline here in front of me, holding Leinster out after Dan Sheehan scores his try. It goes to 22-21 with 62 minutes played, holding, holding out Leinster for the final 18-minute scoreless at the RDS for a one-point win. That has to stand to you for a little while. It does. And like I said, I think it was 19 phases for the Marshall um, intercept. Like, that's a huge momentum swing for Ulster and the psychological boost that you get from that. Like, there are some wins that are more statement wins and you get a lot psychologically from them. But, you know, at the end of the day, like, you have to be very, like, sport is quite fickle. You know, Leinster got held up twice over the line or they, they had an obstruction penalty and they got held up over the line as well. So Ulster actually gave them a lot of opportunities to, to get them as well. Um, not to take credit away from Ulster, you know, they, they did really well. I mean, the scoreboard, uh, it gives you the win at the end of the day. We could say that about every game, like there was opportunities for one team to win or the other. And we can't just do that because it's Leinster. Um, but the the boost that they should get from this is huge. But if they think that they're the finished article, which they absolutely won't, if they analyse that game the way coaches should, they look at the opportunities that Leinster may have gotten on another day and uh, it might not have been so comfortable, you know. But like, like you said, and like Bernard said, three in, three in a row three in a row now and going back into Europe, I think, um, you know, they have to take something from that. But if they're going to be the side that, you know, that Bernard says they are and uh, the expectation within that group, then you can't just leave it be three. Like, you, good teams like that go on a, a serious run after what they've just done to, to Leinster away. We'll, we'll talk about line-out stuff in a bit more detail a bit later on uh, when we're talking about Munster and uh, Munster and Connacht. But Andrew Ryan has tweeted us asking, what's the cause of Ulster season-long issues at the line-out, Birch? Um, they've had, they had their own issues as well. And had they actually had a, a high-functioning fun- line-out on Monday, they might have won by a little bit more. It seems to me at the moment that Leinster are... I know Connacht did well enough at the on their own lineup all the other day, but it's been plaguing them for the season. Leinster seem to be the only Irish province that have a pretty high functioning lineup at the moment. Yeah, Connacht were eight from eight, but uh, as you said, they've been really up and down. Um, Leinster's been pretty settled, no matter who's been playing, um, and that probably you know shows up some of the other provinces because Leinster have been chopping and changing in, in, in their team selection but yet their line has been consistent so whether they're putting more time into it whether they've got a um a simpler system to call and execute uh but it's worrying for Paul O'Connell because you know a lot of a lot of the players that he's going to call into camp um won't be coming in on, unless they change it drastically in the in the two rounds of the Champions Cup of Having a lot of confidence in in their setup, um, and it's not just against Irish defense, Irish teams, and interpros where, you know, you say, oh, we we all playing off a similar system and we know each other inside out. It's been in Europe, it's been in in other URC games, and uh, it's 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 amazing really because historically it's an area that we've we've struggled in the scrum more so than the lineup. The lineup's been an area where, uh, we've been creative, we've been well drilled, and been able to have quality ball. And as you said, Ulster. Ulster could have probably had a bonus point if if their lineup functioned a little bit better, particularly how good their mall is. And I just look back there that mall, that lineup they had five yards out was in the seventy eighth minute. Mm. Um, you know when Frawley was caught and was carried in, and you know from there a championship team gets that try, gets gets the bonus point, and closes out the game. But to actually end up where Harry Byrne makes touch there, 
you know, I, I fancy Leinster to probably go win it there. You know what I mean? Um, so they, there's there's lots of things they need to be a little bit better on, and, and they actually caught that ball, but it just got done for double banking. Um, and again, that's inexcusable, really, in a key moment like that. Um, you just need to be better. Out half watch before we move on to to Connacht and Munster. Um, it's going to be a really really interesting month, Johnny, because obviously Johnny Sexton is retired, but we're also in a situation situation now as well where Ross Byrne is out injured. Uh, I think I saw Leo Collins suggesting it's probably going to be February before he's before he's back. You would expect that means he's not going to be involved in the early stages of the Six Nations. So it feels like we're in a in a situation for these next few weeks where Ireland's out half pecking order for the Six Nations is going to be Jack Crowley plus any you know it's wide open for for one or two more spots. Who who stood out between? Sam Prendergast, obviously Billy Burns did. Do you think he's he's in that picture? Harry Byrne, how did he do when he came on? There are so many contenders and there's a couple of places up for grabs there if someone can just grab them. Yeah, I think it's actually, it, it's a very funny situation, isn't it? Because even though Billy Burns, I thought, played a very good first half, I, I still don't think he's doing enough at club level to go into that Irish setup. Like when you look at the second half, Cooney took on a lot of the kicking, so did Stockdale. From, and I know like Ireland used that as well, any left footer. Um, does a lot of the exiting like James Lowe Zebo did it back in a couple of years back uh, Jimmy O'Brien does it so like it's the way they set up but I, and he also got subbed off a five minutes to go you know I, I've kind of been a small bit critical of that if you're the if you're the international out half then I don't know if that really happens so I know Doak is a good option in there as well so I'm not really convinced by Billy Burns I think he has to string another couple of things together if he's going to get back into contention I thought uh, Sam Prendergast just looks so comfortable uh, I, I, I do actually think it's a small bit early but he was so comfortable, even that when he he spiraling to touch, and then he he had a, a very similar kick to what Harry Byrne did actually on an exit. He just turned and big long boot to the other side of the pitch. It's a big kick. People don't realize when you're kicking to the far side of the pitch, and still making touch just past the the halfway line. Uh, it's huge. Like so, getting that exit wrong is a is a massive counter counter attacking opportunity for the opposition. But I thought Harry Byrne, unfortunately, in the last uh ten last ten minutes or so. He had that kick that unfortunately kind of bounced infield and went dead, which gave Ulster the scrum for Doak to put the ball down to Frawley to put him into touch. Um, so there was a bit of a, a bit of a turnover there in terms of like it could have been a 50-22, couldn't it? And, and Leinster attacking yeah. all of a sudden. It's a bounce of a ball, like don't get me wrong. That's not going to be the selection or non-selection of him. Um, but I think he just kind of hurt himself with that last kick to touch as well. There's a, a maturity that you need from an international and, and that's not it, you know, unfortunately for him. Uh, weirdly enough, like you've got two kind of thirty plus heroes over in Connacht, Jack Carty and JJ Hanner, and I don't know if they're in the picture, but you know it wasn't long ago that Kieran Frawley was in the Irish picture as an out half ahead of Jack Crowley, even. And I know he's not getting much game time there at Leinster, but Andy Farrell sometimes has had a different um way of picking a team, and you'd wonder will he get him into camp and give him a different opportunity that uh, that Leinster aren't giving him. So it's wide open, like you said. I don't have an answer because I don't know what's in their head, but you've got two quite mature out halves over in Connacht that don't seem to be getting a look in. And then you've got the kind of um, best young fellas up in Leinster and seeing who's going to be picked. Obviously, behind Jack Crowley, who seems to be the one who's um, not being challenged for a starting spot at the moment. Birch, who do you think are the the other two we're likely to see alongside Jack Crowley in an Irish squad at the end of this month? I, I still think Frawley's next best, but he's just not. Leo's not given him enough games. I mean, he played against Sale Sharks at 10, but he's been... His versatility is killing him. And, and then, obviously, it's hard for... Harry or Sam to kind of grab it. I mean, the Munster game where Harry played, um, 
the weather was poor, you know, there was a lot of kicking. Um and Harry's skill set is around kind of running and, and, and getting that back line going. I think Sam looks Sam looked comfortable the other night. I thought I thought uh he was he was very good and I, I do rate him, but he's it's a big call from it's a big call from um from Farrell to bring him in, you know, given how little he'd have played. Uh so I, I think Frawley would be the backup um to Jack and beyond the bench and obviously then that covers he covers a lot of positions uh, but if Jack was injured it's really been really difficult like we since since the World Cup we haven't really found the, the next fella next man up clearly you know we're going on Crawley bits of pieces um, obviously he had a, he, he came in for Ross when Ross got an injury against against Munster um, but he has he's been you know he, he's he's been covering other positions since then and, and he didn't have a great game at fullback the other day so uh, yeah it's probably the weak position we're in the weakest uh, in terms of depth. Is is there any possibility like, at some point should the IRFU be leaning on I'm looking at Leinster and Ulster in particular to kind of to to give one person a, a, a big run of games and to actually see how people go because it's as we say with Leinster in particular it's very hard to judge whether it should be Brawley, Prendergast or Harry Byrne when we're only ever really seeing any one of them in in sixty and eighty minute bursts. Yeah, I think that's the that's what we don't understand. Where how much pressure Farrell can put on Leo or Dan, you know, in terms of selection. I know it's a tricky way want to go down, and you certainly would disenfranchise the coach if if they don't agree with you. But um, we are supposed to be all pointing towards Team Ireland, and uh, the way selection has has gone at ten. In in I'd say mainly Leinster to be honest. In fairness, I think. I I I think I agree with Johnny. I don't think Billy's form has been great. I think that's why Flannery has has been getting game time with him. But and even Billy afterwards kind of said that that um it's been a real battle for that ten jersey. So I think Dan is trying to find the best ten there for his own purpose, more so than for Ireland. Um and then Leo's trying to share the game out, the game time out evenly. Um, but it's not really given anybody a chance to push themselves forward. And I think Jack Crowley is clearly number one and, and um he's had the game time and he's shown I think that he's he's the man to get the chance. Ross obviously hasn't had that chance and whether whether, you know, if he's gonna be back for the first or second round of the Six Nations, whether Farrell just goes with him because he's experienced, he knows what he brings. Um but yeah, we haven't we haven't found the, the next in line, I don't think. Let's move over to the sports ground then. Connacht 22, Munster 9. Um, a, a well-deserved victory in the end for Connacht. I think it's I think it's fair to say. We will start though, lads, with the the Munster line-out, which has been a, a common theme of discussion for, for much of the season so far. Um it has come to a head though in the in the last two rounds in particular, the the Connacht game, as well as Leinster and St. Stephen's Day, and coupled with that injury crisis they have. But um, they won 10 of 16 lineouts, Birch, on New Year's Day at the sports ground. Of that 10, I counted three of those that were were won, but were not won cleanly. It was, you know, disrupted by Connacht and it falls back onto a Munster side. So realistically, you're talking seven of 16 lineouts on Munster's throw were, were cleanly caught and retained. Um, that is, that's just not good enough. At, at this level and, and and how is it happening I suppose it's a it's a fairly open-ended question with no yeah, real, like, look at I, I think at Hooker they've obviously lost their first three the senior three senior hookers and then they lost a the guy Owen Clark that they brought in to to give them some cover so 
Um, it, that's that's obviously deeply frustrating for them. Um, it's it's a run of bad luck that I, I haven't seen anywhere in one position. Um, and then the conditions have been very poor as well. So it's difficult for a hooker who's maybe not used to the timing. Um, but it's not just Buckley's fault or, or any of the hooker's fault. There's just a a serious lack of confidence in that in that monster line out. There's a serious lack of smarts. Um, I think in terms of option taking, uh, seeing where the space is, um, and sometimes it seems as if because they've lost confidence in the hooker, they're trying to give him easy throws, and that's actually thrown into contested areas, and that's making them lose more ball. So everything is a little bit off. Um, and yeah, for Kiraku, it's 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 something they need to fix. I think they'd be so happy they have this weekend off. You know, they probably just need you know a couple of sessions in a in a sports hall or in the gym, walkthroughs, uh, get a bit of clarity back, kind of like you would start the preseason, just go back to the nuts and bolts, um, and build a little bit of confidence. But it's a it's a multitude of of different things that are are causing them and uh, to to be really really weak in that area. Yeah, and Johnny, like it's one of those areas of the game where it's a bit of a catch-22 where the the lower your confidence gets, like you could see it from pretty much the first line out of the day uh, a couple of days ago where Dara Murray was just standing there at, at the front of that line out and he was ready to to go up and contest pretty much on 90% of, of Munster's throws. And as Birch was saying, even if you're trying to trying to give yourself some easy throws, you, you have to put it into an area where Connacht are going to be competing a lot. And moving it away from the throws, like I I looked back on each one of those sixteen lineouts yesterday, and of the six that were lost and the the three that were just about one, some of them are throws, some of them are lineouts being called in the wrong areas when there was space in other in other parts. There were a couple as well where, uh, on there's one in particular on thirty three minutes where Tom Ahern jumps up and he's on the run and it's it's a poor jump. He's completely off balance and his lifters can't get him across and Scott Buckley sails the ball over his head. There's a, there's a disconnect between all the players in there. It's not just necessarily one player chucking the ball a little bit too high or a little bit too low. Yeah. And I think there's so much going on in there that like, you know, you see people saying, why don't just win it at the front and they try to win it at the front. And like you said, but but Dara Murray is, is planted there at the front. You can't like, it's, it's so it's much easier said than done. And and that's what people don't realize. It kind of have a very strong defensive lineup as well. With two brothers there, Niall Murray was the uh, had the most turnovers in the front of the lineup last year in the URC. And then you've got Kian Prendergast, a very good lineup option. So Connacht were always going to put them under pressure, knowing that they were under pressure themselves. They were going to get pods in the air to put Munster under a lot more pressure. But then you see even like Gavin Coombs was supposed to start in his, his rightful position at number eight and had to go back into the second row. They don't have second row options that are consistent for the hookers who aren't even. Uh, in all the time they're all getting injured and swapping around um, they don't have consistent personnel even at training I'd imagine their line of sessions at training have been heavily disrupted as well so there's so much going on there um, you know second row injuries hooker injuries the the main personnel that are running that line out are, uh, aren't throwing or catching to each other all the time and then we look at like Mike Prendergast's job is so frustrating when you get seven line outs delivered and he's trying to run an attack I actually don't even know if some of them are you know, exit line or whatever. So you don't even have a massive amount of of um, attacking platform to go off when you've got a younger 10 like Butler, um, Tony Butler in there trying to run the show a small bit and you're not getting delivery, you know, it becomes a very, very difficult uh, game to win. And they did a good job of trying to do that. I think I've a note there, 57 minutes, they went 9-6 up, didn't they? At 57 yeah. minutes. So it actually wasn't as bad as you might 
think when you're thinking about some of the uh, the missed lineouts and the missed opportunities, but obviously they didn't really fire a shot after that, and Connacht fired every shot with the most monster ill discipline and penalties and missed lineout, uh, fittingly to to give um Connacht the final score to really put that distance between them. But the lineout's been really really frustrating, and that that frustration will go through a team, then a backline is starting to think, are we going to win the ball at all? The the excitement around your attack goes out of it, so it's um it's frustrating, but it's very hard on the personnel in there. Like it's very hard to watch Scott Buckley. Um, with the timing, they, I think that line at about 33 minutes. Was that the one? Um, the throw was off, but the timing was off that you can't even blame anyone. It's, it's all to blame. Yeah, like the, like the, the throw, if people want to go back to it, it's just after 33 minutes. It's after Mac Hansen sliced one of those clearances out. So it's about 30 metres out from the from the Connacht try line. And while like the throw sailed over Tom O'Hearn, but at the same time, I'd be looking at O'Hearn. He's, he's kind of diagonal across the line where he's jumping. He's not locked out fully. As a result of that, he's been running forward. The line-out lifters can't lock him out properly. So if there's a proper lift and a proper jump there, he may well actually be catching that catching that ball clean. And, you know, sometimes those pictures can be a bit deceiving Deceiving when you see a ball sail over a fella's hands. I might bring it over to, to you, Bert. Sorry, just one thing on that. You have to wonder as well. Peter Romani normally takes that front position in the line-out. He's obviously been missing and he's a massive line-out option for them. Tom Ahern, I'm not sure. He's been defensively at the front, but... Finine Mitchell obviously came out late as well. So again, the, the change of personnel, Tom Hearn might not even have trained at the front. I'm not sure. But, you know, you might get a lot of changes there, late changes and everything else. But yeah, it's there's been a lot of changes there, which is going to be difficult for their timing too. Yeah, and to go back on what you were saying, where like you weren't sure what position a lot of those lineouts lost were. They were all over the place. I have a couple there that were in and just on the edge of the 22, somewhere back in midfield. And then obviously the one that Jack Anger scores the try from is five metres from Munster's own line. And, you mentioned as well the penalty the Munster got to go 9-6 in front, as you said, 57 minutes. From that point on, Connacht won the penalty count 6-0. So I think that tells you a lot about the way the game went. One last point on the lineouts, Birch, and just from a hooker's point of view, and to bring you back to your playing days, what's it like as a hooker where you're in that situation where you know your lineout is constantly under pressure, confidence is probably low, um, you just you can't guarantee you're going to be winning that ball time after time and having to, to consistently march down the line, getting ready for those lineouts in brutal conditions. It must be pretty tough. Yeah, it's horrible. And it's it's kind of having a trust and relationship with your lineout caller um, where on the way to the lineout, you can have a word and he gives you confidence as well uh, in terms of his calmness. And that was something like someone like Leo Cullen or Paul O'Connell were, were amazing at, or even Devin Toner became really, really good at it. Um, Whereas you look at that Munster pack at the weekend, he, he they just didn't seem to be able to have anybody who could calm him down. At first, Ty Byrne, he was getting quite frustrated with, with the referee um, around some of the breakdown stuff. So a lot of his chat was was kind of trying to convince the referee that Connacht were illegal at the breakdown. Whereas you probably just need someone who's solely focused on um, how can I secure possession, you know? And they are missing someone like Pete, even though Pete's more famous for his, his defensive line at work. Um, uh, he 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 could back himself to beat anybody at that on that front ball, and you know they were they were trying to use movement to to win that ball cleanly at the front, and they weren't getting ahead. Uh, they weren't able to execute it, and I I also think I, I agree with Johnny. It actually affects your overall attack, and I actually think it's part of the reason I think Munster overplayed in that game. Um, they played too much possession, but I can I can see if you don't believe that kicking the ball away will lead to you getting the ball back. Um, which I think probably their backs probably felt. 
they weren't going to get it back. You don't want to kick it away. But the more they played, um, the more likely the way the game was being refereed that the defensive team are going to get the penalty. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just thought Munster just looked so frustrated. Conor Murray, just before he was taken off, you could hear him on the ref mic, yeah. you know, really getting animated with, with Busby uh, around the breakdown where he felt Busby coached Connacht, you know. Um, but by that stage, the opportunity was was dead. And you look at, you know, Munster looked at, at their best off counter-attack. So uh, Carty was kicking down the middle to Zebo. They were the only real times I thought that uh, Munster looked to be dangerous. That first two or three phases after that first carry by Zebo, um, and after that you just felt Connacht were so comfortable. But part of the reason was Connacht were were doing a great job of slowing that ball down, and I would say illegally. But then the referee was was coaching them, um, and by that stage it wasn't a penalty anymore because Connacht reacted to his coaching. But the ball was six, seven seconds dead. And uh, it's been a feature this year the pros um, that the team who's been trying to play uh, have have looked more vulnerable than the, the team who are defending. Yeah, and that was a common feature on, uh, in particular, the, the Connacht Monster game, Johnny, where you were you were largely better off not having the ball. And I do, I want to give Connacht a bit of credit here now because we've kind of focused in on on Munster's weaknesses and that was a massive result for Connacht so I think we probably do need to give them their dues of you know turn around that five game losing run is is massive for them in the in the course of their season um I'll come back to the coaching bit in a little bit uh coaching or around the refereeing because that's something I think we need to talk about but purely from a Connacht point of view um how did they go about turning that game around where as we mentioned First half, Munster were comfortably on top. I know the conditions were behind them, uh, the wind and that rain uh, during the game. But Connacht were coughing up a lot of penalties. They couldn't really get a hold of the ball. They had no real attacks to speak of. And what was it from that 55, 56-minute point where Munster went 9-6 ahead that Connacht all of a sudden grabbed control of the game, grabbed control of the penalty count, and pretty much just wore Munster down? Yeah, but I think that was going to happen in that, like, we saw Munster a bit comfortable in the first half, but they had the conditions. And, you know, Connor probably survived that a little bit too easily. And you can go back to the line out there and why Munster didn't convert a little bit more. They, they needed to convert more because the team that was playing with the wind in the second half was always going to get that patch where they were going to be hard to stop. Because when you look at Munster, um, what Connor did really well is they protected their backfield when the, when the ball actually went into the air. So Connor uh, playing with the wind, you can see Jack Carty got blocked down when he tried to kick to the corner once and he just repeated that the second time. I don't think it was a 50-22, but he had a lovely kick into the corner, which, which is good game management. It's good game management before the 50-22 law came in. And it still is now whether you get the ball back or not. So he obviously had it in his head that he was kicking long. And Connacht were able to kick long and put Munster into their half. I know Zebo had one or two good runs. But other than that, like Bernard said, they were they were blunted in, in their attack because they couldn't kick the ball into the air anymore and get the ball back because Connacht's kind of glove that they speak about, their protection of their backfield. Uh, Bolton had a couple of nice catches because he wasn't really being... Uh, challenge in the air I think um, Calvin Ash overran one of them couldn't get him when he landed and he had a nice little kind of carry back and it just gave Connacht that little bit of momentum to kick long and, and cause Munster a bit of trouble which they didn't have to do anything special obviously a couple of refereeing decisions went their way and um, JJ put over one or two penalties and and then uh, you know they didn't actually have to work very very hard for that last try they kicked the ball well which is what you know the answer to your question is they kicked the ball well in the second half but I think surviving the first half 
allowed them not to have to chase the game so much, stay patient, believe in that kicking game, kick it long. Munster weren't able to get back up the pitch, really. And when they did, they had one or two errors, uh, along with their penalty that went over. Um, but Connacht's patience and, and long kicking game eventually paid dividends and um, and it was going to Munster were up against it. They were finding it hard to get a score at that stage. Um, I spoke to Pete Wilkins after the game, Birch, and the thing he kind of flagged as the the most impressive and what he was what he was most pleased with was that having got into that three and six point lead in the final ten minutes, how and this is something that we've spoken about about Connacht this season, where it's silly errors have let teams back into the game and there was a, a real focus defensively. I know Munster weren't asking massive questions of him. There was just a lot of back and forth in that middle third of the pitch, just kind of going from one touchline to the other, trying to force Connacht into making an error. But at the same time, Connacht did need to just stay switched on, stay making their tackles and eventually just wait for Munster to make the error. Yeah, I, I think it was really mature and I, I agree with Johnny. I thought they took a bit of risk by by kicking the ball along to Zebo, but they backed their kick chase and as I said, after that first initial couple of phases, they looked unbelievably comfortable and um, Munster are a team who are quite comfortable in their shape. They they used that sweep play, but you never felt that Connacht were, were under pressure. Um, it was only that once, the one that Murray went mad about in the 72nd minute, there was a little slight overlap down a five-metre channel that they looked vulnerable for but I think Scott Fardy deserves a lot of credit and Connor deserves a lot of credit for pushing the referee to the absolute limit um, in terms of slowing that ball down so I think it was smart by them tactically they won the penalty count they slowed the ball down they gave their defensive um, front line a, a time to to get organised they were quite strong in the, in the tackle uh, and yeah and it was, it was probably Fardy's best defensive performance they showed a load of fight a lot of resilience, which we would have been very critical of them. I was anyway after Bordeaux when it wasn't there. Um, and, you know, it was a must-win game for them, particularly the way Munster had injuries before the game and, after, and during the game. But they, they did it. And JJ kicked his goals. They didn't overcomplicate things. Heffernan was eight from eight in the line-out. So lots of positives for good impact off the bench, you know. Um, so I think Pete Wilkins will be really, really happy that they've had that tough period and they found a way out of it. Let's let's talk then about the the way the way that breakdown was refereed, and I'm not going to single out Chris Busby, the referee who was there on the day, because I think it was an issue as well between Munster and Leinster on St Stephen's Day in Thoman Park, where we have ended up in a situation over the last few years where more and more the referees are kind of coaching the players as they're going along, um, essentially you know hands away. And, you know, there might be two more seconds of, of hands on the ball, slowing it down and constantly saying to players, OK, hands away, you know, uh, roll away now. Just telling the players what to do rather than instantly punishing them for for doing it. And Johnny, obviously, I get the the logic behind it is a referee does not want to be giving out 30 penalties per game. They want to, to have some sort of flow. They want the game to be able to move without constant stoppages. But... At, at what point does it become too much? I'm quite frustrated with it, actually. Like, I, I've asked this question of referees recently, obviously a different level, but, um, you know, when do you stop coaching them, just ping them, and they'll stop anyway? And that's your game management, you know? So they're, they are, like you said, like referees see themselves as a manager of the game, too, when they're kind of the, the guardians of fast attacking rugby and a, and a spectacle that you don't want um, 30 penalties, like you said. But if you... 
set out your stall early, which we have seen referees do. And sometimes that's frustrating as well. You're like, geez, that's a harsh penalty, but they do it early and they don't have to do it again. You know, so um, I understand the need for a flow in the game and and uh, you don't want to be pinging everything. But that's when teams will try to, like what Connacht did, like that's where you're going to go after everything. You know, play dumb. Oh, the ball not out. My hands are still on it. Is the ball not out? Sorry, ref, I'm, I'm back now. You know, that kind of crack. And it's like, that slows down the game more than anything. You know, so ping that and off you go. But I think uh, my frustration in the breakdown as well is, you know, uh, to be fair, I don't think Ralston meant what he did in the breakdown, but his entry, they're getting away with that entry a lot. You know, and I've asked this question as well, that like, you know, that 45 degree angle into the into the breakdown and squaring up through the breakdown, it's not a bad picture for referees, so they let it play out. But like, when you get it wrong, which I think he just did, he missed his clean. And I know people are talking about trying to pin the foot. I don't think you think about those things. Uh, I don't think there was any intent in it. But his, his entry was dangerous. But the problem is you're getting away with those entries nine times out of ten. So, like, you're you're teeing up players to get those injuries because we're allowing players to do that. And the laws are sometimes a little bit blurry in terms of, you know, I, I looked at the law yesterday and it says that you can enter from uh, a kind of a sideways angle if you square up and show a good picture afterwards. I just don't think that's good enough when you're seeing injuries. And if you are trying to get the game cleaner, why are we allowing that to happen? Like, why can't you just come through square like you're supposed to do? You know, you're allowing a shark put into the break, and I don't, I don't like that to be honest. So, um, I don't know why we're getting so much coaching. It's like the the referee now is is part of the game management. Let the teams manage the game. You just ping what's illegal, and and let's get on with it. Like that's my view. And we did see two pretty serious injuries, Birch, at the breakdown. The the Jack O'Donoghue one from Baron Ralston, and then Mac Hansen obviously went off with what looks like a dodgy shoulder injury, and he could be a doubt for the Six Nations now. And it goes back the. I, I was just trying to look through my emails for the exact quote of what it was that um uh that Graham Rowntree described the um the breakdown was in the, the Munster Leinster match. I I can't remember the word, but it was like altogether we're we're seeing a lot of pretty lawless games around the breakdown where players are just flying in at all angles and there's no surprise that we had a game like we'd had the other day where we've two pretty bad injuries coming off it. Yeah, because we're not getting punished. Um and it would take two games max to clean it up but at the moment like I, I praise Scott Fardy there because he set his team up to push push Chris Busby to the absolute limit I'm sure Len Sleamy had the same opinion but just the nature of the game Munster were playing more ball in hand so we you know we're focused on, on Fardy more so um, it was more evident uh, Connacht were happy enough to, to kick it away a little bit earlier and that's the reality of it at the moment it's a nightmare for referees they're so focused or over the last couple of years their focus has been on tackler and the jackler you know so tackle made is a tackler rolling away is he going east or west uh, okay yeah he is okay nothing to see here the jackler have they um had they had a clear release have they been a part of the tackle have they used um have they supported their own body weight etc but there's there's loads more happening after that it's the, it's the the plus one or the plus two who's coming in now from from various angles charging barging uh, ending up on the wrong side for a second being coached back out of it and he's done his job um, so it's really difficult for referees and, and I think they're giving the players the benefit of the doubt more uh, more often than not and the players know that and they know what they're doing they know what they're doing but it can't be just Chris Busby doing it on, in the sports ground and not happening yeah. with Frank Murphy it has to be like there's, I would imagine there will, well, there will be a referees meeting now before Europe and you know, if it like the, the Six Nations is going to be a poor spectacle if we don't get us tidied up. Um, 
Uh, and I, I'd have no issue with is, is having a bad weekend in terms of lots of penalties just to get it cleared up because at the moment it's becoming very, very hard to play. Um, and I don't blame the referees. I said their their focus, the coaches have changed the focus on what's important to defensive teams now. Um, and unfortunately for the referees, there's so much, so many marginal decisions that they are giving the benefit out to the defending team. They're they're coaching them, etc., to keep the penalty count lowish. Um, but it's actually starving us of quality or quality ball at breakdown time. And and when we don't have that, the game just becomes a a wrestling game and a wrestling match. And let's be honest. Okay, both the four provincial games are interesting, um, and they're seen head to heads. You know, you're seeing competitive games, but realistically, the quality of attacking rugby in all four of them was well. Three, the Ulster kind of game wasn't too bad, but in the other the other three matches were average enough. I thought. Street fight was the word that that Graham Rowntree used to describe the the breakdown in that in that Munster Leinster match, which I think is fairly appropriate. Um, last couple of points. Um. We mentioned the monster injury crisis, which is up, I think, around 20 people now. You can actually get pretty close to selecting a decent enough first 15 of players um, from the injury list alone. Graham Rowntree suggested the other day that they, they are looking at a couple of emergency um, emergency short-term signings. Uh, a tweet in from Barry McLaughlin, emergency injury signings for Munster, who should be considered Johnny and Birch, it, it feels like a very, very difficult question to answer given the point we are in the season where realistically, are there only options for short-term signings, essentially people who are on the fringes or, or not in the first team of the other provinces or around the Premiership France or, or Southern Hemisphere players that aren't necessarily in the in the plans for Super Rugby this season? Yeah, it becomes difficult because like the timelines are all over the place in terms of their, their injuries and all of a sudden you get someone back and you're spending a lot of money, but like you can take your pick in the pack, you know, take your pick in the monster pack and see who you want to bring in. Obviously, a front row is going to be important. If if Ali Ager is out for quite a while, I actually don't really know was that how precautionary that was. He didn't look great, uh, but he was there signing, like you know, and yeah, and, just to just to jump in, so uh, Rancher did say afterwards it was a concussion. Uh, by the end of the game, he was up walking around. He was in the changing room. So the um. I suppose everything we saw on the pitch probably was precautionary, but he did have a he did have a pretty bad concussion. But he was up walking around and and chatting to his to his teammates by the end of the game, by all accounts. Yeah, and by all accounts as well. Now Scanlon's not massively far off now again, but and, and there's a signing. But like you know, so it is it is a little bit more difficult when you're trying to. And then who's available? What quality are they? How much you have to pay to bring them in? You know, so but it. It's like Werner said, it's been unprecedented nearly the, the amount of injuries that they've had. So you can you can nearly choose your position. Um, but hopefully they'll get a couple of people back and they won't actually need signings at the moment, you know. Yeah, I don't think they'll get players unless they're very young from the other provinces. Um they'll they'll want to look after their own um their own journeys for the next two weeks. I think also a lot of the good players from WAS. London Irish and Worcester are already found homes now and, and are settled. And that's why I think you've seen the Premiership teams improve. Um, and to get someone up from the Southern Hemisphere in time to be ready to go in round three of Europe is quite tough. And then obviously they don't play again until the end of February. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, potentially one of the other provinces might might help them out, but you're you're, you're really just filling the gap. You're not going to get anybody who's who's going to come in and, and help you win those two games, I don't think, you know. Um, you're just literally finding a body. 
They've had two signings. Like Owen Clark came in, yeah. injured. Diego came in, injured. So it's not like they haven't even signed anyone. Like they have. It's yeah. just Mars, you know. So it, like I don't know where they're getting from, from either. But you're saying there, Bernard, that if the other provinces helped them out, you actually even laugh at that. Like they're not no. helping them. Out. <laughs> no, I know, I know. But I'm trying to think of a player who's experienced the falling out of favor and probably the look at the obvious place where the most talent is and the most depth is Leinster. But the way Leo rotates, you know, for example, someone like Will Connors, you would have said, wow, like you know, he. he he doesn't get much game time. Get him down there. He'll do a great job for you for a couple of weeks. It suits him. He gets games. But he's actually got game time over the last while. You know, there's no one in my mind that is in Leinster that's kind of in the fridge, to use a French term, that um, is is being frozen out. They're all getting a, a bit of game time. Yeah. And now then they have the added issue of the or the start of February having that game against the Crusaders. Sure. One more game of rugby is not what Munster need at the moment. <laughs> I mean, it's it's going to be a nice money spinner and all that, but uh, geez, hopefully not at too much of a cost uh, to players. Yeah, the spectacle is going to going to go out of that, isn't it? If they're going to be nervous around it, I'd say Graham Roundtree does not need that fixture now. But it's it's also tough for people going to like those tickets went fairly fast. You're hoping to see a repeat of the South African game last year, and at the moment you're not really going to see that. Final thoughts. Um, final thoughts of the week. I'll see if we have any more any more questions to throw in there. I have um, one last one from the red hand. This one seems to be a bit speculative now. Going back to Ulster and Leinster, twenty five years on from that historic day in Dublin when Ulster were crowned kings of Europe, is it is the time we started believing in the spirit of ninety nine? Now that we've beaten Leinster, is uh, is that Ulster fan getting a little bit ahead of himself, Birch? Yeah, I think that's a big push. Look, I think the reason I've been so critical of Ulster is I do believe there's a lot of talent there. Uh, that was the most experienced, I think, Ulster team that have ever come down to the RDS. You know, you've guys like Timoney who are top quality, but not, you know, known at the same level as, as the Josh Van Der Fleers, et cetera, because it's so hard to get into the Irish team. Um, I still don't think they're going to win Europe, but let's hope that they they follow up on what's been a really good period for them, three good wins, and and, uh, and start to build now. Right. Good answer. So that's that's my New Year's resolution for 2024, guys. Trying to get more more people involved in the podcast, more comments, more questions. So if you do have them, send them to myself. Leave them on there on our YouTube channel. Tweet us at RT Sport, whatever you want to do. Uh, but we will try to get more listener questions into the lads throughout the, the course of 2024. Anyway, lads, thanks a million. That's it for this week. Uh, no games in the URC or Champions Cup this weekend. First weekend without professional rugby. Uh well, professional men's rugby. There is Celtic challenge this weekend for the for the women's teams, but um, a well needed break for for a lot of people, I think. Um, if you are out about in Dublin, a couple of matches you could go to. As I mentioned, the Celtic challenge. The Clovers are taking on uh Bride and Thunder at two thirty p.m. Energy Park, and the Bateman Cup final is in Lakelands. Terenure against Young Munster on Saturday afternoon. So if you are out around Dublin, get out to a match while you can this weekend, and um. We'll uh, speak to you again next week. Birch and Johnny, thanks a million for joining us as always and a happy new year. And we'll speak to you again soon. Thank you. Bye-bye.